You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favoured woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who is called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we had a little election yesterday. You guys hear about that? Yeah? Some of you are like, oh, man. You know, I was meant to do something. Yeah, we, uh, we had an election. I went uh, along with Renee and our kids. We went down to across the CRC here and put our ballot in the box. And I know, uh, I don't know the kinds of conversations you've had with people leading up to this election, but um, if you take the real strongly partisan people out of the picture and you, you're left with probably the majority of us, um, I, what, the sentiment that I was hearing over and again was just one of resignation, like, uh, I, you know, the reason we don't really know who to vote for is because there's no one we really want to vote for, and, uh, and you're kind of looking for the, the lesser of two evils. I find that that's a kind of familiar um, attitude when it comes to these things, notwithstanding the fact that we're very grateful that we live in a democracy and we have a vote, and, you know, it's just the, a lack of leadership that people believe in that is the issue. And I think probably what unites people who feel that way, me, perhaps you, uh, people outside of this church, what unites us, I think, is this, this, whether we identify it or not, we have this inner longing for a good ruler. We have this inner longing for a good king. We want someone to lead us who we can trust. 
Someone to lead us who has our best interests at heart. Someone to lead us who can do so with justice. And, uh, and I think that that connects very, very well in with the idea of Advent. Advent is, uh, just comes from the Latin word adventus. It's translated from the Greek word parousia, and it just means coming or appearance. Coming. Someone arriving. Um, if, uh, if in the Roman world Caesar came to town, people would talk for weeks and months beforehand about the, the adventus of Caesar, you know, the, the advent. He, we know he's, he's on the way. And then they would greet him with great fanfare. That's the idea that's trying to be encapsulated in the Christian idea of, of Advent. And it's split two ways, past and future. At Advent, we remember his first coming, and that's what we're going to major on this year in Advent. Uh, last year, we majored on his second coming, that, that thing that we're yearning for and longing for that is to come. And I think... What we experience, or let me just speak for myself, what I experience throughout this election season is that deep longing for a good king. That, that is the kind of longing that we tap into, particularly at Advent time, though hopefully it's something you feel all of the time. Here we have no lasting city. We seek a city which is to come. Here we have no effective ruler. We seek a ruler which is to come. At our church, we kind of, we, we, well, we very much resist the, um, any call to be partisan in any way. We have no political party here. We are citizens of the kingdom. We are loyal to the king. And, uh, and I think probably our experience um, if you look through the Bible and look for the experience of people like us in an age like this, the, the place that you find the most resonance is in the Old Covenant as you have the people of Israel um, exiled in Babylon. That's how I think about us. That's how I think about the Christian church living in 21st century Melbourne. We are exiles in Babylon. Now, the, the people of Israel were, I mean, deeply grieved that they had been conquered by this great foreign power and had been exported, extradited, exiled into a foreign land. While they were there, they still, from God's instruction, sought to bless the, the foreign land that they were in. They, they sought to make the best of it that they could. They sought to maintain their their relationship with God in the midst of it, but they knew and they grieved that they weren't in the place where they belong. And I think that's how we ought to live in the midst of this Babylon that we live in. We seek its blessing. Uh, we live uh, lives of integrity, first and foremost loyal to our King Jesus, and we grieve, we long, we yearn for that land that we were really made for, our native country. That's the country that's yet to come, the new creation that Jesus will bring in the second advent, his second coming. Just hear the words from the prophet Isaiah speaking of this, this exile, the, the kind of yearning they had as exiled people in Babylon. He says to God, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down 
so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Like the longing was just, God, please show up. We have no hope here that we can save ourselves. We have no hope in a temporal government. We need you to rend the heavens, tear the heavens open and come down. That's Advent hope. So during these four Sundays, I want you to have that kind of at the forefront of your hearts, that sense that we live in eager expectation and longing. We don't put all of our chips in the Labour Party or the Liberal Party or any other flavour of politics. We are exiles in Babylon. Our hope is ultimately in the return of the King. Amen? All right, now... Focusing as we are on the first advent and and looking particularly at Mary's song, the Magnificat, Mary's song in in Luke chapter 1. You know that I I told you today we're sort of just setting the scene for that song that we'll get to in the next three weeks, the actual content of it. But here's the scene, and it's familiar to you, and I just want you to resist the temptation to go to sleep, all right? Because everyone's heard these words a thousand times, and that's the danger, we domesticate it, and, 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 and so we diminish the effect it can have on us. So try and hear these words of the, of the historian Luke. Try and hear them with, with fresh ears this morning. We're going to pick it up at verse 26 and 27. Look with me. It says, in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. You read about her in the preceding paragraph. That's one of Mary's relatives. She gives birth to John the Baptist. All right, so that's the sixth month he's talking about. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, those couple of verses, you get a lot of unexpected material. All right, that, everything that was just said is unexpected. This is why we need to kind of hear it fresh because we think, oh yeah, that's exactly what, you know, that's what's meant to happen uh, coming up to Christmas. But in no sense was this fulfilling any kind of expectation with the exception of a couple of things we'll get to in a little bit. But everything about this is unexpected. And, and, and the first thing that's unexpected is the appearance of an angel, right? And I find this is, can be a bit of a stumbling block to the, to the kind of... Um, Christmas Christians, you know, the, like we, we have this group of people and we, got, we love them and God loves them too, but they turn up every year right around the last week of Advent or, or maybe just for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and, and they would identify probably as Christmas Easter Christians and I think one of the things that is a stumbling block to them when we get straight into Christmas and Easter is that you have these weird things occurring in both cases, Christmas and Easter, lots of weird stuff happening. The first weird thing that happens here, at least unexpected, is that an angel is sent by God. The angel Gabriel, one of the the kind of chief angels, the archangels, he identifies himself to Elizabeth in the preceding paragraph, or to Zechariah actually, as an an angel who stands in the presence of God. All right, so he's a big deal. And he is sent by God to Mary. The, the, the issue I think that we have with this is that we, we kind of, we've fallen into a, what is actually a modernist era. So you think 18th century, 
the whole world is going through this huge scientific revolution, and all of a sudden, for the first time ever, people, particularly Western cultures, start using the terminology of natural and supernatural. We probably use that terminology, you might use that terminology yourself, but you, and, and that's okay, but you need to know that's a new thing. That's an invention of, of the kind of post-scientific revolution because they, they were trying to figure out what can we know? What we can know is what we can observe. What we can, the information we can receive through our five senses, that's natural. Anything outside of that, we'll just, we just put that in the big junk drawer of supernatural, and then we shut that drawer because that's all nonsense, all right? What we can know is natural. And so we, we have fallen in this, into this era, which is not at all biblical. The Bible knows no distinction between nature and supernature. The error we make when we read about an angel coming and speaking from God to a person is we say, well, okay, so that, that's obviously supernatural, but there's nothing more natural than angels. They are part of God's creation, just like the mosquito that you swatted this morning or the dog that you fed last night. Like They are natural. They are part of God's good creation. Now, they're unexpected for sure. But if you, if you think about the way that they're spoken of in the Bible, like a couple of passages in, in, in Hebrews make, make this, I think, um, yeah, help me to understand this a little better. So Hebrews 1.14, where the writer is contrasting angels with Jesus, and, just, and, and there was an, this idea in the early church among some people that, that, um, that somehow angels were like superior to Jesus in some way, or maybe Jesus was just on the, the level of angels. And he's like saying, no, you, you don't get it. He's way above angels. And one of the ways he describes what angels do and, and what they're for is he says, are they not angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? And he's just saying, this is matter of fact. This is not a crazy idea. This is what angels are. This is what they do. Obvi, right? And so if you are someone who is going to inherit salvation, like someone who is able to stand up and say the Apostles' Creed and mean it, um, then you need to know this is what angels do, this is what they're for, they're for you. Angels are ministering to us. If you've been adopted by God, inheriting salvation, then that's what angels are all about. You ought to be asking God to be sending angels to you all day long. Just minister to me. I'm, I'm finding myself wandering away from the faith, or I'm, just, I'm feeling you know, lacking in trust in your goodness and grace. Well, you want you want the ministers to come. And, and that's not me. I'll do a terrible job. I'll be late and then I'll, just, like, I'll fall asleep or I'll just... I'll, I'll, I, the minister you want is one sent by God. And those, 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 those beings, those natural created beings, they're angels. The cool, really cool part comes later on in Hebrews 13. This is part of our, our uh, wedding the passage we had at our wedding, and uh, it's Hebrews 13. This is, I love to think about this. He says, let brotherly love continue. Don't let, neglect to show hospitality, right? Hospitality is when you take a stranger and make them your friend. Hospitality is going out there after church tomorrow and just noticing someone who looks a bit lonely and said, do you want to come around for lunch? That's hospitality. He says, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. I love that. It's like, that's like a, 
like a fantasy story of some kind, and yet it's not. There's nothing supernatural about it. The fact that you could have people around for lunch and not know that they were angels, that's because they're not crazy, you know, fantasy creatures, sci-fi stuff. They're natural. So, natural, yes, unexpected, absolutely, all right? There's no question, you know, all through the scriptures when angels show up, there's something unexpected going on, and that's what's happening here. Angels are unexpected, but perfectly natural, nonetheless, unexpected, but that's not the only weird thing about this first couple of verses, all right? The next unexpected thing is the identification of the town that Gabriel heads for, verse 16, uh, 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Nazareth. That's an unexpected thing. Nazareth was a nowhere town, like an absolutely nowhere place. It's not even on the map. In fact, it wasn't until the 1960s that we actually had confirmation that it ever existed. It, was, it wasn't until the 60s that someone found an inscription that referred to Nazareth. There's no like, ruins to be found because there was hardly any infrastructure there 2,000 years ago. Nazareth is nowhere. There's some places, you know, like the fact that we all know it is not because it was some great metropolis. The fact that we know it is because it's kind of famous by association. You know, some places are just famous by association. Nothing's ever happened there, but then someone becomes famous who, you know, was born there. This is like, I really love the artist Nick Cave. I think he's one of the most phenomenal artists in history. He was born in Warwick, Nabil. All right, nothing has ever happened in Warwick Nabil, ever, in regional Victoria. But Nick Cave was born there. So now it's kind of, it's, it's famous by association. Same is true to a stratospherically greater degree with Jesus of Nazareth, right? The famous, most famous man that's ever lived by a long way. Jesus of Nazareth. It's kind of a joke that the most famous man who's ever lived, who's had the biggest influence on civilization of anyone who's ever lived is Jesus of Nazareth. It's a joke. Nazareth is nowhere. To the extent that, like, you read in John's Gospel, uh, just as Jesus starts his formal ministry, people start hearing that this guy is something special, but they can't kind of put it together with the fact that he's from a place called Nazareth, right? In John chapter 1, you see this. Uh, Philip found Nathanael after he had been introduced to Jesus, okay? He found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, son of Joseph, from <clears throat> Nazareth. And, and then, and then <laughs> Nathanael's response is classic. He's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip's answer is brilliant. He says, come and see which is the exact response you should give to people if you say, you know, you should come to my church on a Sunday morning. They're like, yeah, that church. Opposite McDonald's, that, that place? Like, surely that is not worth my time. Then just, you know, just say, come and see. Come and see. But that's, 
a natural response to hearing the guy that's meant to be here to change the world comes from the nothing place. Nazareth. So, let's let's hit those two verses again. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The fact that she's a virgin in the context of the whole story, another unexpected point. The fact that the person she's engaged to, a better word is betrothed, so betrothed in that day meant pretty much as good as married, to the extent that you know that when Joseph finds out that Mary is in fact pregnant, he seeks to divorce her, that, that's actual divorce. You'd have to divorce from being engaged. It was that serious a thing. The promise was binding. And the person that she, the man that she's engaged to, betrothed to, is of the house of David, the line of David. That becomes very important in a couple of verses' time. But all of this uh, is, I mean, the truth is stranger than fiction. You couldn't write this. But it's the scene. It's the scene that we have. The angel Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, comes to a little virgin girl in a dumpy, nothing town. She's probably between, I don't know, 13 and 16 years old. Some people say maybe 12. Some others say about 18, maybe. But it's probably, I, I think, probably between you know, 13 to 16 years old. She's living in this nowhere place. And the angel of God comes to her and here's what happens verse 28 to 29 the angel came to her and said greetings favored woman the Lord is with you but she was deeply troubled by this statement wondering what kind of greeting this could be deeply troubled her response is to be deeply troubled and there's a whole lot of reasons why first of all predominantly because of the cultures she lives in she lives in a very different culture from us when it comes to male-female relations. So here's, here's, here's my context, our context. 2022 Caroline Springs. I, as a 41-year-old man, can and do frequently speak to teenage girls and you know, young adult women. Teenagers, women in their 20s. I, like, all the time I'm speaking to them, whether it's at a cafe or, like, the, the biggest opportunity for this is over at Woolworths when I do our big weekly shop. There are, like, four or five, I don't know, I guess teenage, maybe early 20s girls that I've got to know well just by turning up the same time every week. And we chat. I hate this idea that everything's being, like, self-serve. It's a terrible idea. Um, we've still got some actual people putting stuff through uh, over here and so I get to have these great conversations and they kind of know all about me and my family and this church and it's great. Um, nothing untoward. At, you know, maybe if I was being sleazy or something then we'd be like, oh, this, this, is, this is a bit dodgy. But just in terms of general conversation, this is fine, right? Mary's day, that, would, that was utterly unheard of for a man to speak to a woman particularly 
for a man to speak to a younger woman, in this case a virgin woman, was uh, scandalous. This is why it's so scandalous when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well in John's Gospel. He's there alone with a woman, speaking to a woman. She's sort of taken aback by it. It's because it's weird. It it just does. There is no cultural expectation or acceptance of that kind of thing happening. In the the second century Jewish text, the Talmud um, speaks of these different kinds of Pharisees and sort of does it in a disparaging way, a kind of an ironic kind of Jewish humor kind of way. And one of the groups of Pharisees they talk about are the bleeding Pharisees or the bruised Pharisees. And these are guys, they say, who the the Pharisees who turn, who, um, are always bumping into walls because whenever they see a woman, they kind of close their eyes. Right? That's the kind of culture that Mary is living in. You don't go and talk to a person of her position, of, of her status, if you are a man, ever. And she has just been <laughs> confronted with some kind of man uh, I don't know what he appeared like. He never says he's an angel. Um, but there, there must have been some way in which just by the, his bearing, by his appearance, I don't know, she, she gets the message. This is at the very least a man of authority. And so he comes to this girl, virgin girl, by herself it seems, and speaks to her in this profound way. Greetings, favoured woman, the Lord is with you. I think the kind of thing going through her mind immediately, and one scholar I read was like, the real miracle here is that she didn't just run. That, that would be an, an appropriate response. That's what I'm telling my daughter to do. If someone just appears in the house one day and you're the only one there and it's a strange man, just head for the door, right? She doesn't do that. She doesn't faint, swoon. But she is troubled. She's concerned. Why is this man here to begin with? Why is he here speaking to me, a young virgin girl? Why is he here speaking to me like this, favoured woman? All of these things are running through her head at a thousand miles an hour, and Gabriel senses this, right? He senses her discomfort, maybe her fear, Her uncertainty, verse 30, the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Do not be afraid. Why? Because you've found favor with God. I had this profound experience when I, in the year I really came to faith, uh, some of you have heard me speak about this before, I won't go into all the details, but it was in the midst of a very... If I was using the modernist terminology, a very supernatural environment. There are all kinds of things happening as I worked with these inner city kids from Pittsburgh and they were bringing in a lot of really uh, hardcore uh, history of abuse and 
all kinds of terrible stuff and, and we were sharing the gospel of the good news with them and, and into that, that this sort of, there was this collision of powers, I guess. And we had these really crazy, in, in a way that I haven't seen since, manifestations of dark spiritual powers, put it that way. And it was so, it made me so scared that for at least a year, if not probably a couple, I didn't sleep with the light off. I would not sleep with the light off. And I would have an extra lamp next to my bed that was on and then a, a, a torch in case the power went out. All right? that, and I was just so gripped by fear. And it was fear, I think at the, at the root of it was this. There is power beyond my scope to control. Now, all of us know this is a fact, right? The weather is an example of that. But the, the, these were like personal powers that could come into my world without me inviting them. And that was very scary to me, particularly the dark kind, but actually any kind. I remember praying to God fervently, please do not send an angel to me at any time. I do not want to see any angels. I've had enough of the demons, but I don't, I don't want the angels either. Just all of that stuff, please, just, that, keep, just keep that away. And what I needed to hear is what the angel said to Mary. Do not fear. You have found favor with God. I needed to know that because I had found favor with God, that is, I had been adopted by him, I was his child, I therefore had no reason to fear. The good angels or the bad ones? Do not fear. You have found favor with God. So he reassures her and then he just jumps straight down to business. All right, he says uh, in verse 31 and 33. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. It's quite an announcement. I mean, I know our ones week to week are, are moderately interesting. There's a woman's breakfast on, kingdom prayer on Monday night. That's an announcement, right? Listen. If he was, you know, if he was me, he would have said, all right, everyone look right at me. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He, this, is not, this, this is not like some kind of forecast or some kind of hidden hope. This is what's going to happen. This is history. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And at this point, I just imagine Mary looking around for hidden cameras. Like, hang on. This is some kind of prank, right? This doesn't, I, I'm a very young virgin girl in a, no, a nowhere town. 
This is the kind of, like, I don't know if anything really extraordinary has ever happened to you, but part of your brain, as it's trying to figure out, is this real? Part of your brain, conditioned by our modern culture, is like, who is pranking me? Everyone's got a phone now. I know that someone is filming me. This is a joke. I mean, this must have been utterly overwhelming for this little girl. First of all, she's a virgin, all right? And she's being told she's going to have a son. That's quite a thing. We don't know how long these guys would have been betrothed for. It probably wouldn't be like a 2022, we're engaged and getting married in 2032 kind of thing. That nonsense. Apologies. But yeah, it's nonsense. It's probably not that long, but it is long enough that she knows I'm not having a son anytime soon. And yet she's told, you will have a son. And being a Hebrew girl, she didn't have the kind of formal education that boys had, but she knew the big picture of God's story. She knew the big picture of the scriptures and God's plan of salvation. She shows us that abundantly in the song she's about to sing. Heaps of scripture in that song. She knew it well, and she could hear in the words of Gabriel all of this Old Testament stuff coming, like flooding into the present. She, she, she would have known Isaiah 7:14, which prophesied this very event. The prophet Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which you know means God with us. And she would know as he spoke of her son inheriting this kingdom that will never end, she knew to Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your time comes, speaking to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up after you, your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Joseph of the house of David, a descendant of King David, being announced as the king over whose kingdom he will rule without end. An eternal king. And all of this is happening to this virgin girl in a dumpy town. And I just don't know how she's not overwhelmed by it. She's so, she's, as the kids would say, she's so chill. She doesn't faint, she doesn't swoon, she doesn't run, she doesn't say, shut up, all right? She just says, very, she goes straight to logic. She's very logical. She's very composed. Verse 34, Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Straight to the logic of the matter. This is, you know, like, I can accept all of the crazy stuff you just said, but I, no, yeah, I, like, here's, I know we like to think of ourselves as so much more sophisticated and intelligent than anyone who's ever been before, like, from the 1950s or the first century. Nonsense, by the way. But, like, these people knew how babies were made. Right? This is not, like... She's not confused. She knows, in order to have a baby, I will need to have sex with, hopefully, Joseph. 
who I'm betrothed to. That's how it works. You don't have sex before you're married, and then you have a lot of it after you're married, and you produce all kinds of children as a result. That's how it works. And so her response is just very logical. How is this going to happen? I'm not sexually active, obviously. And his response is similarly logical, really, when you look at it in its entire context. So he says, verse 35, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. The answer to Mary's question is just God will do it. That's all. God will do it. Simple. The angel, Gabriel, who understands how the world works, understands that God is sovereign over all things and all things hang together by him, through him, for him. His answer is simple. God will do it. Now the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is not sexual language in any way. This is just, these things will happen because God is going to sort of manifest himself in and through you. The power of God by his Spirit, the kind of overshadowing, the same word is used at the transfiguration when God sort of descends like a cloud, right? That's that's what's going to happen and you will give birth to a son. You, the virgin, will give birth to the king of kings. God will do it. This is the point, right? This is all this discussion of the unexpected, the dumpy town, the virgin girl. Like All of this serves a purpose. God does this all the time. He loves. It's one of his favorite things. Like One of God's hobbies is to take the most unlikely ingredients and make the most incredible feast with them. Because then we say, oh, God did it. God did it. God is majestic. God is powerful. God is able, for nothing will be impossible with God. Your relative Elizabeth is barren, sort of outcast as a woman who can't have kids in that culture, just just very at the bottom of the tree, she is six months pregnant. What do you think about that? Nothing will be impossible with God. God will do it. God's power at work is able to achieve all things. Now, the question for us is, who needs to hear this right now in this congregation? Who needs to be reminded of this truth? It's really the foundational truth of the whole of Christmas. God will do it. Nothing is impossible with God. Not just for God, but with God. God with us. God actively intervening in our experience. 
the mundane, the day-to-day, the conception of a child. God with us. Not supernatural and natural. Some sort of like massive gaping chasm between him and us. Some sort of deistic universe where he's up there and we're just trying to get by. No, God is with us. And nothing is impossible for him. That situation that you're in now that feels utterly impregnable, right? The relationship that seems, it's, it's, it's devastated beyond reconciliation. Well, no, nothing is impossible with God. You know, you just insert your circumstances. The work situation, the, 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 ki- the rebellious kid situation, the financial situation, the health situation. Nothing is impossible with God. And we need to know this because, because our native environment is one of cynicism. It's like, you know the reason we find it so hard to get rid of the weeds on this plot of land? Talk to John and Cicero about it, right? Your, your property guys. The reason we find it so hard to get rid of them is because they're here naturally. They're not imposters. They grow here. They're doing what they're meant to do. And we're trying to get rid of them, and that's hard. It's the same with cynicism. We are, because of our flesh, because we haven't yet been made the way that we, God wants us to be in the new creation, we have these weeds of cynicism by nature. I was with some of you Sunday last week praying for God to do miracles in the life of someone who's very ill and in a situation that seemed like it was just impossible. And I, and I had to hear from the words, the mouths of others, nothing is impossible with God because I was going into it thinking, man, this is a, this is a steep hill to climb, even for a God. We need to hear this from each other. She needed to hear from Gabriel, Elizabeth. She's six months pregnant. We need to hear from each other. One of the reasons we pass the mic around and say, what's been God, God been doing in your life is because we need to hear it from you. Next time we, we offer the mic and you're like, oh, I don't want to say anything, I just don't, I, I'm not good at public speaking, then just rebuke yourself and recognize we need to hear this from you. We're all tending towards cynicism, diminishing the glory of God And what we need to do is, as Joe said in the prayer time, we need to magnify him. That's why it's called the Magnificat, by the way. That's because Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. We need to magnify what he's doing. It helps poison the weeds of unbelief. How's this going to happen? God's going to do it. And you can come to the Christmas story with all kinds of post-enlightenment cynicism about the supernatural and all those things. But ultimately, if you believe that God is who he is, then none of this is impossible. Virgin giving birth, nothing more likely. (laughs) Why? Because God is God and we are not. And that's the story of Mary. Listen, There are some Christians over the years, particularly our our Catholic brothers and sisters, who have made too much of her and have venerated her beyond anything she would ever want for herself, right? They have made her the purveyor of grace. They've mistranslated Gabriel's words to her and, and made them, Hail Mary, full of grace. 
turned it into a prayer, made her the purveyor of God's gifts. This is not who Mary is, but neither is she nothing. She's not someone to be cast aside like many Protestants have done over the years in reaction and overreaction. She is a woman worthy of our adoration, worthy of our um, emulation. She's a great example to us of trust, knowing the promises of God and receiving them even when they come to her via the most unexpected means. And we see this in her response. I'll end on this. Verse 38, she says beautifully, what a girl. Look, I've got a a soon-to-be 12-year-old. This is what I want her to be. Like, just, you you want her to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, a plumber. These, These are great aspirations, but make sure they're subservient to this, right? You want her, you want him to be someone who hears the call of God and says, verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel left her, and I imagine he was very pleased with her. That is a response. That is a worthy response to an enormous calling. I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. I want that to be on our hearts, in our minds as we approach these next three weeks, looking at the words of her song, this beautiful song that she sings. I want you to hear them coming from the mouth of a worthy and obedient servant of the living God and then ask that through this series, God will make you more like Mary, make you more like a teenage girl, make you more like her who is willing, willing to take on such a calling because it was part of God's beautiful, eternal salvation plan. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this account that we've read this morning. Thank you for your servant Mary. Thank you for her willingness to serve you in this way. We call her blessed, just like every generation has done since this time. Blessed, blessed by you and worthy of our emulation. But far more than Mary, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We take all of our hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future and for present day kingdoms and we put them under his rule and we yearn, we yearn, we yearn for his coming again. We say with the prophet Isaiah, God, please tear open the heavens. Come again. Do justice on the earth. And make all things right, we pray. Through this series, Lord, please be working on our hearts. Overcome our cynicism. Reignite our affection for you. Our expectation that you'll do great things in our midst. And we ask all of these really big things in Jesus' good name. Amen.